Hello and welcome to a bonus holiday episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing a very important Buddhist holiday. We will be discussing the history, significance, and celebratory rituals attached to Nirvana Day. What does this holiday commemorate, and how is it celebrated? We hope you enjoy. So, what is Nirvana Day? Nirvana Day, often also called Peri-Nirvana Day, commemorates the final nirvana of the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama. The final nirvana, or the peri-nirvana, of a Buddha is when that Buddha's physical body dies and they enter into final extinction, meaning that they have taught the Dharma, relinquished all attachments, reached final enlightenment, and they will not be reborn again. They leave the world of samsara and never return. In discussing this day, it's important for us to discuss a little bit about the death of the Buddha, which is documented in the Maha Parinibbana Sutta and the Maha Parinirvana Sutra. You might notice that these names sound exactly the same, and it's because one is Pali and one is Sanskrit, but they are actually different documents, as you'll see. The Maha Parinibbana Sutta is the Theravada account of the death of the Buddha, which includes his last sermon, his death, and the rituals that took place after. The Maha Parinirvana Sutra is the Mahayana account of his death, which includes all of that, with some doctrinal differences and some sections that have been lengthened and expanded. For ease of use, these are called the Nibbana Sutta and the Mahayana Nirvana Sutra. We'll be reading and discussing both of those at another time. There are important similarities to both stories. First of all, the Buddha knows that he is soon to die. And though his disciples beg him to stay and continue to teach, he tells them that there is no avoiding his death. In both stories, the Buddha also receives alms from a blacksmith, which makes him extremely ill and causes him to give his last sermon and eventually pass away. This last sermon is about the impermanence of all things, about the Dharma after he's gone, and about what sort of death rituals ought to be done. Then he passes away while famously laying on his right side with his right arm under his head, and he's cremated. This is very important in the Buddhist tradition. Whenever a Buddha or an enlightened person dies, they are cremated, and they leave relics that are not burned in the funerary fires. These relics are collected and distributed, and stupas, or small temples, ranging from the size of a cabinet to the size of a building, are erected over them, and they become objects of worship. This is a prevalent practice among most, if not all, Buddhists in East Asia and abroad today. The Mahayana account expands greatly on the doctrinal fronts. First, in it, the Buddha argues that his life was a skillful means. In fact, he was enlightened from the immeasurable past, instead of being enlightened first under the Bodhi tree, and his whole activity of being born, leaving the palace, meditating under the tree, and his whole body of sermons, and even his death, were all skillful means to teach and enlighten and encourage sentient beings. Additionally, the text is greatly concerned with what will happen to Buddhism and Buddhists after the Buddha is gone. He is the primary and sole teacher of the Dharma, and they are worried that without him, they would not have a direct line to the Dharma, and thus would not have access to enlightenment. Indeed, they're worried that they had not tasted chocolate, but the Buddha had, and he was the only one who could describe it to them and lead them to it, and without him, they'd be groping around blindly. The Buddha solves this problem by arguing that beings have Buddha nature, meaning that there is an essence of everybody that is of a fully enlightened nature. The meaning of this in simple terms is that there is in all of us the memory of the taste of chocolate, and we just have to work to remember it and to taste it again. The final important thing is the discussion of the three bodies doctrine. The three bodies of the Buddha are the Nirmanakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Dharmakaya. The Nirmanakaya is the Buddha's physical body. 
The Sambhogakaya is his celebration body, or the body that can be perceived through intense meditation. And the Dharmakaya is thought of as the corpus of his teachings, which is coextensive or even identical with the Dharma itself. The text argues that the Dharmakaya is eternal because it is the Dharma, which breaks down the distinction between a Buddha and the Dharma, and it will serve as everyone's teacher after the Buddha's death. In that regard, the meaning of the holiday is a contemplation on impermanence, death, nirvana, and our inheritance of the Dharma from the historical Buddha. How is Nirvana Day celebrated? Typically, many Buddhists will meditate, light incense, make an offering to the Buddha, and maybe also visit a temple. There will be a sutra recitation, maybe a potluck, or another such ritual commemorating the death of the Buddha at a temple. This is also a day of reflection for those that one has lost and what those passed away have left behind. Observations vary widely among the different schools of Buddhism. So we should remember that because Buddhism has localized and rituals and religious holidays have localized as Buddhism has traveled across East Asia, it's very difficult to say all Buddhists do this or do that on this or that day. What happens in this valley in China is not what happens on that mountain in Japan. But the meaning of the holiday is more or less the same. So take today to meditate on the Buddha, the meaning of his passing, and the eternity of the Dharma. We hope you have enjoyed our bonus episode about Nirvana Day. We wish you a happy Nirvana Day and hope you have learned something about this very important Buddhist holiday. Join us on April 8th, where we discuss the Buddha's birthday. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening. All right. And now let's just do a real quick clap sync to divide between this and episode 20. Sounds good. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one. All right. I missed that one. Now, Can I try that one one more time? Three, two, one. There we go. All right. And now episode 20. Hermit, how many genders do you believe there are? More than I can count and still more. Though I've er bleh, though I've observed most to be male or female. Those are indeed the sexes, but not quite the genders. And even among the sexes, there are those who are born not quite one and not quite the other. Quite right. Though, I wonder what the Buddha has to say on this. I believe the Buddha says a lot about this. On the one hand, every Buddha has the 32 physical marks of a great teacher and leader, and one of those is a male mark. On the other hand, the physical marks are empty of inherent and substantial existence, and thus are non-dual. I wonder how we ought to reconcile these two proclamations. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be answering a question submitted to my... This week, we will be answering a question submitted by my friend and one of our listeners. His questions are, Does Buddhism, or different Buddhisms, have an opinion on transgender or non-binary identities historically or in the present? How is gender identity thought to interact with reincarnation, if at all? How is this issue dealt with in the modern era? We hope you enjoy. So, let's get on to it. Does Buddhism, or different Buddhisms, have an opinion on transgender or non-binary identities historically or in the present? Generally, gender identity is not a distinct issue in the canon. The separation for, between gender and sex is a modern conception of gender that recognizes that it is a social construct. This separation is also an artifact of the limitations of language, the Western conception of the body, 
and Judeo-Christian understandings of the body, society, and their function and relationship. That it is a modern or Western discourse does not make the issue any less valid, however. Um, it is of critical importance to fill in the empty space in the English language and the Western conceptions of the body here by understanding that the anatomy somebody is born with and the person they are can be separate and different. This is undoubtedly a place where Western religions, culture, and society have a problem. However, Buddhism is roughly the same age as the Judeo-Christian religions and has some of the same problems as well as some different ones. To address the question at hand, gender identity being separate from physical sex assumes a Cartesian separation between mind and body, which does not exist in Buddhism. If we can say that gender identity is an individual believing their capital S self is one way while their body is another, then most Buddhist doctrine would say this is folly, because there is no capital S self. That self is empty. If we can say that being transgender means that one views their physical anatomy as different than their capital S self, then Buddhism would, reg would regard this as a form of desire that replicates an illusion of self. If you believe that your capital S self is or is not this way or that way, then you assume the existence of it and you are attached to it, enough to say that it should be this and should not be that. This, according to Buddhist doctrine, would lead to dukkha. In that regard, Buddhism understands and acknowledges that gender is a social, namely human construct. However, from that alone, it's easy and not entirely incorrect to say that Buddhist doctrine can be queerphobic. However, there is another point to consider. Because of the doctrine of emptiness and non-duality, Buddhism would not ever, ever, ever say that what is in one's pants is what gender is. How's that the case? Buddhism invalidates the idea of body dysmorphia in general, including body dysmorphia caused by being transgender, by saying that in that one is mistaking body for self. However, it does validate the fact that one's physical anatomy is ultimately inconsequential, insubstantial. Sorry, I'll start that over again. Yeah. Um, however, it validates the fact that one's physical anatomy is ultimately inconsequential, insubstantial, Sorry. However, it validates the fact that one's physical anatomy is ultimately inconsequential, unsubstantial, and subject to change. This is different from the Christian argument, which is that God gifted you this body, and if you're ungrateful for it, you're offending God, and you're going to hell. I'll stop that discussion there, because that is exactly where Christian arguments about issues of gender identity stop being doctrinal and start being about other things. How is gender identity thought to interact with reincarnation, if at all? This is one place where we find a considerable problem in the Buddhist doctrine, um, and this is something we've discussed in our past episode about gender as well. To be reborn as a woman is considered karmic retribution for bad deeds done, and being reborn as a man is seen as karmic recompense for good deeds done. Indeed, most Buddhist traditions argue that one can only become a Buddha in the body of a man. That is because, as we've discussed before, all Buddhas have 32 special physical marks, and one of them is a sheathed penis, and that is a male mark, and thus means that all Buddhas are supposed to be men. I should, however, note two incredibly important points with regards to the issue of gender identity. First, this says nothing about a Buddha's gender identity, because a Buddha is enlightened enough to transcend a gender binary or a gender identity. This only speaks to a Buddha's anatomy, a Buddha's physical body. Second, when a Buddha enters into his final nirvana, he transcends physical form, and thus anatomy becomes a non-issue. Those being the case, Buddhism seems to have competing perspectives on the issue of gender. This can be explained in a number of ways. 
To explain it historically, Brahmanical Indian society in which Buddhism was born was pretty misogynistic, and thus so too was Buddhism. To explain it doctrinally, the Buddha, being fully enlightened and having transcended gender and anatomy, still had to preach misogyny because his audience was misogynistic. And you have to use dualistic language and problematic language, such as man and woman, to lead others to an understanding of non-duality. You can see how this is a little bit of an apologetic stance. Uh, no one has to use misogynistic language for anything. But if anyone was to try and understand how this fits, how the misogyny fits with emptiness and non-duality, this is where they would go to in order to make that argument. How is this issue dealt with in the modern era? In the modern era, there are lots of apologists that try to lean on the non-duality and emptiness doctrines, arguing that believing in a strict gender binary is an unenlightened perspective, whereas transcending it and understanding its limitations and the problems it causes is a more enlightened perspective. That said, there are still misogynistic rituals, institutions, and figures in Buddhism, which represent a problem. While those people exist and probably will not change, doctrine can be, and is regularly, rewritten. That is the process by which religion evolves and stays relevant to the people for whom it serves a purpose. To that end, there are Buddhists which respect the texts but believe and act entirely differently. I count myself as one of them. Those misogynistic texts I can be incredibly critical of, and I can say, I, I don't like those, I don't believe in those, I don't uphold those, because they're just simply wrong. Additionally, Buddhism has a lot of room, doctrinally, for the idea of live and let live. It's critically important in Buddhism that we be extremely and unwaveringly nice to each other. That's important in many religions, but obviously it doesn't shake out that way in reality. In the end, I think that the way to solve the problem of misogyny and queer phobia anywhere and anytime it comes up in Buddhism is to be Buddhist and not be misogynistic and queer phobic. It really is that simple though it often does not happen in, in the real world that way. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of this is a matter of the people involved as well as the religion involved. Um, this is something that I've struggled with in... Let me think about this before I continue saying it, because I think if we're going back to the same cul-de-sac that I edited out the first time we talked about this. Yeah. Uh, hmm. This is going to be a short episode, as is. Um, need to... What else is there to talk about here, I think? Because I'm, I'm worried that we're retreading a lot of the same issues on the gender... Uh, on the first episode we did about this instead of making new stuff. So um, where I think that this episode departs from the previous gender episode is that one really dealt with misogyny exclusively. And we didn't really mm -hmm. talk about, um, we didn't really talk about non-binary gender identities or transgender identities. And um, we also didn't talk about sexual orientation. That's an issue that's tangentially connected to this that we can get into Um there's a little bit more room um, in that stuff since we've already covered over the misogyny issue. Right. So I'm trying to think of a way to uh, to add more to this because like we're we'll be releasing a like ten minute episode as is. Yeah. Um. I think talking about 
sexual orientation is kind of a separate thing because sexual orientation and gender identity are also separate. distinct yeah. also you know they're distinct right um and also would have more implications on an episode about uh you know buddhism's view on sexuality rather than on identity so i think so buddhism kind of has an idea of Hmm. How to? I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. Um, how did it kind of goes into the idea of the Buddhist idea of identity in general, which is not a by and large Buddhism seems to because of the uh, the concept of non-self and emptiness and impermanence, kind of rejects having an individual identity. So. I guess I see where this leads into the the I where the whole question doesn't parse well to a boot in a Buddhist perspective just because identity is something that you're trying to get away from in any way, right? I would agree with that completely. I would say that because of non-self, any conception of self as this or that is is incorrect or maybe is. Um, according to Buddhism, an unenlightened perspective. And I think that um, how that relates to this issue of gender identity is very complicated because I think that if I were to put on my hat as the representative of all Buddhism, me saying that, take that with a grain of salt, obviously that's impossible and not realistic in what I'm doing at all. But I would say that um, should should people in the LGBTQIA plus community be accepted? The Buddhists would say, yes, they should be accepted. They should be validated. They should be supported. They should have rights just like everybody else. And uh, there's really no, there's really no problem there at all. Buddhism, while it is an issue about social reform, while it does focus and emphasize social reform in a lot of ways, um, when it comes to identity politics in any way and public sphere stuff, um, it's very, very, very much humanistic in regards to like, you know, best for the most and worst for the least, if that makes sense. Um, but with regards to how does one person traverse their own individual journey with gender identity and their conception of their own body then that's where the invalidation of of gender identity starts. Um, and it's not even so much invalidation beyond the misogyny that we see as much as it is um, diagnosing a cause for the suffering that something like body dysmorphia or body euphoria would cause somebody. What I mean by that is um, body dysmorphia is as I understand it from people that I've heard about it from and from my own research, not having experienced it myself, as I understand it, it's the, um, the feeling that you, you're not comfortable and you're not yourself and you're not happy and content and fulfilled in your own physical anatomy. And euphoria is the opposite where um, maybe you're wearing certain types of clothes or you're wearing your hair or your body hair a certain way or presenting one way or the other. 
um, and that gives you euphoria, makes you feel the most like yourself. Both of those, dysmorphia and euphoria, are, are, are feelings that would cause dukkha, ultimately. And Buddhism says to the dukkha, well, it's caused by desire. And body dysmorphia and euphoria is caused by a desire to be one way or the other. And um, instead of alleviating the dukkha by enabling it or feeding into it or letting it have what it wants, so to speak, because it's, un- it's insatiable, instead of trying to f- feed it, we should kind of move away from the desire aspect. Now, does that mean that if someone has body dysmorphia and they do Buddhism, so to speak, they do meditation and they um, try to get rid of desire such that it gets rid of, you know, their desire to be one way or the other. And then once that's done, what do they do? I don't know. So what I mean is like, if someone goes through the journey and um, they maybe even reach enlightenment, is their body dysmorphia or euphoria cured? Have they decided um, I'm going to present this way for this or that reason, it's very unclear and it it varies by the individual. I think that karmically speaking, um, intention matters the most, right? And so if someone has body dysmorphia, maybe it's possible that um, they can have reassignment surgery or dress differently or wear their hair and body hair differently. And with the intention, not of strong desire, but with the intention of something else, um, maybe skillful means, maybe enlightening others, maybe being the best Buddha that they can be, some other more meritorious intention, they would think, the Buddhists would think maybe that would be better and thus a valid means of like justifying doctrinally um, reassignment surgery or something like that. Uh, But this is all very complicated and very, very dicey territory like i i don't think that it's really solvable as hard as we may try because um this is not an issue that buddhism was really conceived to um conceived of to encounter this is something while transgender identities and while body dysmorphia and body euphoria are human conditions that have been around as long as humans have um certainly reassignment surgery and certainly this idea that there is a masculine and there is a feminine and those have specific characteristics those are much 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 younger than buddhism and our current conceptions of how those work are you know evolving every day while buddhism is 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 2000 year old doctrine and so like you said earlier it comes down to the people in a lot of ways um is Buddhism queer phobic or not? The question actually should probably be, is that particular Buddhist or this particular Buddhist queer phobic or not? Because I think that that's, I think that's what you would encounter more often than not is the variety among people who are, you know, queer phobic for, for their own reasons that may or may not be related to Buddhism. Um, just like I said before, a lot of these issues of queer phobia, um, there is a religious aspect to them sometimes, but um, for the most part, they're actually, in my opinion, other reasons why people why people feel that way. They're using religion as a justification in a lot of cases and as um, 
a means of achieving some what they think is some moral high ground. But I don't think that um, if you look into any of the texts, they say anything like, if you use they, them pronouns, you're going to hell. Does that make sense? Right. It's... It's a no-op. It's like, I don't understand... The the text doesn't really understand the question at that point. Because the definitions just weren't there when the text was being written. Uh, Moving back to your point on not being able to fix this, and I will probably edit this to come earlier in the episode, but it needs to be acknowledged that this is a pair of cishet white dudes talking about gender identity. So, uh, we're... If... If the whole idea of being able to solve this was hard enough before, it's definitely not going to happen with us. We're not the people to actually solve that problem. Exactly. It should be left to uh, not cis people who are also Buddhists rather than us. But uh, we're also the people who are making this show. We're going to do the best we can with it. Uh, I want to present a potential argument in favor of... uh, gender uh reaffirming procedures such as uh i mean but you can have we could talk about gender reassignment surgery but there's also a much less extreme of uh hormone replacement therapy right which i have i have seen do like everyone i have seen who has wanted it has been much improved by experience it and that's something that i would say could lead to a doctrinal uh a doctrinal allowance for this, which is uh, gender dysmorphia interrupts one's mindfulness in right. a lot of the same ways that pain does. Mm-hmm. It is a, <clears throat> excuse me, like gender dysmorphia from my observations of it in other people. Again, I haven't, like, like you, I haven't experienced this myself, but it's pain. It's a type of pain. And just as one would need to treat pain in order to be able to meditate, I think dysmorphia also needs to be treated in order to allow for mindfulness. I would agree completely. And when you read the texts, um, they say things like, you know, we are, um, we are belabored and abused with um, unwholesome mind states, like you say, like pain of the different kinds, physical pain, emotional pain, um, etc. And what we are aiming to do with our practice, with our daily life, is to move away, transition from unwholesome mind states to wholesome mind states, such as mindfulness, freedom from pain, um, joy, and energy, and things like that. And um, the, the, the way that one does so doesn't really actually matter nearly as much as doing so, if that makes sense. There's meditation and mindfulness, and those things do um, turn one's mind states from unwholesome to wholesome on the, you know, on the whole. But um, additionally, just like you say, interfering with mindfulness is, you know, it's kind of the trademark of the unwholesome mind states. And getting them out of the way, however you should or can, seems justified when it comes to the actual basic practice of mindfulness that leads to the path of enlightenment all right that's much better i think we've got a good episode now uh i will find a way to make that work in the edit it shouldn't be too hard all right sounds good so all right ready to go for the outro yep
All right. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode on gender issues with regard to karma and reincarnation. Join us next week when we discuss Buddhist temple etiquette. What is common Buddhist temple etiquette? What is the doctrinal foundation for that etiquette? How is this etiquette different from different schools of Buddhism? Uh, okay, wait, I said that wrong. How is this etiquette different between different schools of Buddhism? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. See you next time.